Uh, good evening. Uh, let me welcome this hearty group to the opening of our conference, The Constitution for the Ages, James Madison, the Framer. Uh, we're delighted so many of you are here. Uh, we're even more delighted at the prospective attendance that we hope will materialize uh, tomorrow. As many as 500 people have signed up uh, to come to these events, and that does not include, of course, people from the town as well as people from the campus. So obviously the subject of James Madison uh, has struck a major chord. Why is it being celebrated in conjunction with the centennial of the graduate school? Um, Madison graduated from Princeton in 1771, and the graduate school was not founded until 1900. Well, the answer is that um, he was one of the very first of the early graduates of Princeton to remain on beyond the baccalaureate degree. Uh, and in that period, he is said to have read law and Hebrew with President Witherspoon. And so as we look back at graduate education at Princeton, we like to cite Madison as certainly among the very first, uh, if not the first. We're also uh, celebrating uh, his uh, presidency of the Alumni Association. Madison, it turns out, uh, in his later life, served as first president of our Princeton Alumni Association. And we thought by joining this conference with Alumni Day that takes place uh, this weekend on uh, Saturday, we would pay double tribute uh, to this wonderful figure in American history and this wonderful figure in Princeton history. Uh, I just want to call to people's attention that uh, there is an exhibition in Firestone Library uh, of Madisoniana that is held in Firestone, uh, and also there is an exhibition of material on the founding of the Graduate School uh, that I think many of you might find interesting if you have a few minutes uh, in the next day. Uh, you'll find in your packets, if you've picked them up, suggestions for further reading about Madison. Uh, these books are available at the U Store. The format of our conference will be a series of uh, five lectures beginning this evening. Uh, following the lectures, we hope to have questions from the audience, uh, and we're asking our speakers if they will kindly repeat the questions because these sessions are being simulcast uh, and indeed uh, taped by C-SPAN. At this point, let me introduce John Murren, Distinguished Professor of History here in the Princeton History Department, who will introduce our evening speaker. Again, welcome to all of you on this snowy evening. I promised our speaker to be brief, so I will be. Uh, he's the Alva O. Way University Professor of History at Brown University. He's been teaching at Brown for decades. Uh, and uh, I've known him for 30 plus years. Uh, not, I can't remember just when we met for the first time. 
I am, let me uh, just mention two of his many publications. Uh, the first, uh, The Creation of the American Republic, a book that came out in 1969, which I still think is one of the real landmarks of the historiography of early American history in the last uh, uh, half century or so. Uh, he transformed the way we think about the constitution-making process in America, both at the state level and eventually at the Philadelphia Convention and the ratification. Uh, it won the Dunning Prize of the American Historical Association, the Bancroft Prize. Uh, it was a, a nominated for the National Book Award. Uh, and then in the early 90s, he uh, also published The Radicalism of the American Revolution, uh, arguing uh, a point that uh, I all of a sudden was appearing all across the political spectrum, uh, to my surprise, that uh, the American Revolution is the most successful one in modern uh, world history. Uh, that its results have been more permanent, and he also insists that it, it is truly radical, even though his first book argued that the Federalists were really trying to put the brakes on. Uh, they didn't succeed, uh, and the Constitution that they drafted to put the brakes on uh, eventually empowers the world's most populous, uh, uh, populistic democracy uh, by uh, really uh, by, uh, through the first quarter or so of the 19th century. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a provocative book, and uh, I, it has generated uh, controversy, and there was a forum on it, the William Mary Quarterly, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's a very stimulating book, and I recommend it highly. Tonight he's going to speak to us uh, on uh, James Madison, of course, uh, and uh, the title of his talk is, Is There a James Madison Problem? Well, Gordon, is there? <laughs> Thank you very much, John. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, now, scholars used to talk about the Adam Smith problem, um, or as the 19th century German scholars like to call it, das Adam Smith Problem. This problem arose out of the presumed discrepancy between the uh, Adam Smith of the theory of moral sentiments and the Adam Smith of, uh, of the wealth of nations. Smith seemed to be two different persons with very different views of human nature. While Smith's moral sentiments seem to ascribe human actions to sympathy, his wealth of nations seem to ascribe them to self-interest. Much scholarly time and energy were spent trying to account for the apparent differences between these two books. Eventually, however, more recent scholarship has shown that the problem was a figment of our scholarly imaginations and that the two books can, in fact, be reconciled. But can we do the same for James Madison? Nearly everyone sees two different Madisons, two Madisons who appear to be as wildly different from one another as the two different Adam Smiths used to be. There's the Madison of the 1780s, the fervent nationalists who feared the states and their vicious tyrannical majorities and wanted to subject them to the control of the central government. Although he did not want to eliminate the states, he seems to have wanted to reduce them to what at times to be to appear to be a little more than administrative units that, as he said, might be subordinately useful. This is the Madison who's become the father of the Constitution. By contrast, there's the Madison of the 1790s, the strict constructionist, states' rights, co-founder of the Democratic Republican Party, who feared the national government and its monarchical tendencies and trusted the popular majorities in the states. By 1798, he was even willing to invoke the right of the states to judge the constitutionality of federal acts 
and to interpose themselves between the citizens and the unconstitutional actions of the central government. For the early Madison, popular majorities within the states were the source of the problem. For the later Madison, these popular majorities in the states became a remedy for the problem. It's hard to see how these two seemingly different Madisons can be reconciled. This first Madison is the author of the Virginia Plan, which, as you know, became the working model for the Philadelphia Convention. We often forget what an extraordinarily powerful and sweeping national government the Virginia Plan proposed. According to Madison's plan, both branches of the bicameral national legislature would be proportionately representative, thus eliminating all semblance of state sovereignty from the national government. Moreover, this national legislature would have the power to legislate in all cases in which the separate states were incompetent. And even more starkly, the power to negative all state laws that, in its opinion, contravene the Union. Madison believed that this veto power to be absolutely necessary and to be the least possible encroachment on the state jurisdictions. During 1789, when the new Washington administration was getting on its feet, uh, Madison still seemed to be the quintessential Federalist. Although a member of the House of Representatives, Madison was President Washington's closest confidant. He helped shape the legislation that created the departments of government and was very important in establishing the executive's independence from Congress. Even his support for a Bill of Rights that dealt only with individual rights and liberties was seen as a means of, of subverting or diverting the anti-federalist demand from any more substantial uh, limits to be placed on the national government. Only slowly did Madison seem to change. Although he reluctantly recognized the need for funding the national debt, he was not happy with Hamilton's proposal in January 1790 to pay only the current holders of the government's bonds. But Hamilton's plan for the national government to assume all the state debts angered him even more. These issues were not beyond compromise, however, and at a dinner arranged by Jefferson, Hamilton and Madison clinched a deal in which the Southerners could accept the national assumption of state debts in return for having the national capital uh, on, on the Potomac. With Hamilton's proposal for a national bank, however, compromise appeared impossible, and Madison's criticism of the Secretary of the Treasury's plans became even more severe. Now, Hamilton wasn't surprised by, by opposition to his financial plans. He knew that state and local interests would resist all efforts to strengthen national authority. But he was surprised that his harshest critic in the House of Representatives was his longtime ally, James Madison. He thought that Madison had desired a strong national government as much as he had. He could not understand how he and Madison, whose politics, he said, had formerly so much the same point of departure, could have diverged so dramatically. By the end of 1790, Madison and other Virginians were openly voicing their, their alarm at the direction the national government was taking. By 1792, Madison and Jefferson were emerging as the leaders of what Madison uh, called the Republican Party, in opposition to what seemed to them to be Federalist efforts to establish a consolidated British-style monarchy. But so much was the Republican Party the result of Madison's efforts alone 
that it was often referred to as Madison's party. By May 1792, Hamilton had become convinced that Mr. Madison, cooperating with Mr. Jefferson, is at the head of a faction decidedly hostile to me and my administration and actuated by views, in my judgment, subversive of the principles of good government and dangerous to the union, peace, and happiness of the country. With the coming of the, the French Revolution and the, and the outbreak of war uh, between Republican France and, and monarchical Britain in 1793, the division between the Federalists and the, and the Republicans deepened and became much more passionate. The future of the United States appeared to be tied up in the outcome of this European struggle. None of the Republicans, writes historian James Morton Smith, was more committed to the concept of the revolution in France as an extension of the one in America than was Madison. Now, By this point, Madison was convinced that Hamilton and the Federalists were bent on making a connection, as he put it, with Great Britain, and under her auspices were determined to move in a gradual approximation towards her form of government. Until his retirement from Congress in December of 1796, Madison remained the undisputed leader of the Republican Party in the Congress and its most effective uh, uh, spokesman in the press. When the crisis of 1798-99 came to a head, it was therefore not surprising that Madison and Jefferson should have emerged as states' rights advocates against the consolidationist uh, tendencies of the Federalists. What happened? What could account for this apparently remarkable change of sentiment? From being the leader of the Nationalists and Federalist movement in the 1780s, Madison became the leader of the states' rights and anti-Federalist movement in the 1790s. Explaining this change does seem to be a major problem, one that has bedeviled Madison's biographers and historians of the founding era. Most biographers and historians have concluded that Madison did indeed change his mind about national power. In drawing back from Hamilton's program, writes Ralph Ketchum, Madison took another step backward from the nationalism he had first expressed so firmly in May 1787. Hamilton and others, Ketchum goes on to say, judge correctly Madison's changing attitude toward national power and perhaps had had some grounds for feeling betrayed by him. During the early 1790s, writes Jack Rakove, Madison revised many of the beliefs he had held as a radical nationalist in the, 17, in the late 1780s. During the early part of 1790, writes Joseph Ellis, Madison went through a conversion process from the religion of nationalism to the old revolutionary, uh, revolutionary faith of Virginia. Even his most sympathetic biographer, Irving Brandt, suggests that the disagreement between Hamilton and Madison on social and economic matters, though it had existed for a long time, grew until it produced a change in Madison's political and constitutional views. Now, scholars' explanations for Madison's apparent change of views have varied. Some have described his sudden turn in 1790 to be a matter of political expediency, designed as the opening move in a presumption of state-oriented politics. Others have stressed his awakened loyalty to the sentiments of his Virginia constituents. Taking off from this new consciousness of Madison's Virginianness, still others have pointed to his inability to comprehend bond markets and mercantile affairs and his disgust with northern speculators and moneyed men. Others have talked about his friendship with Jefferson, 
and his willingness to defer to his older colleague, ready always, as he told Jefferson in 1794, to receive your commands with pleasure. And still others have stressed what he thought as a, that, that, that Madison thought as a working statesman, shifting his opinion in accord with his perception of where the threats to liberty and Republican government lay. Now, as far as I know, uh, Lance Banning is the only uh, scholar writing today to maintain that Madison did not change his views in the 1790s. But in order to stress Madison's consistency in the 1790s, Banning has to play down Madison's nationalism in the 1780s and turn him into something less than a full-blown nationalist. He was, says Banning, a nationalist of certain at certain times, on certain issues, and within the limits of his revolutionary hopes. In other words, says Banning, modern scholarship has mistaken Madison's position in the 1780s. It has generally misjudged the hopes and fears that he brought into the Constitutional Convention. It has misinterpreted a major change of mind, which started while the meeting was in process. And therefore, it is misunderstood, says Banning, how limited a nationalist he was when he came to write The Federalist. The opposition Jeffersonian Madison of the 1790s, concludes Banning, was not as inconsistent with the father of the Constitution as is usually believed. Now, I agree with Banning that Madison was more consistent to his outlook than we historians have admitted. But I have a different explanation for that consistency. It is not, as Banning says, that Madison was less a nationalist in the 1780s than, he, than we used to think. He was, I believe, very much a fervent nationalist, eager to create a national government that would regulate commerce and control certain kinds of behavior in the states. But he was not the kind of nationalist that other Federalists, such as Hamilton, were. And when he came to realize what kind of national government Hamilton was trying to create, he naturally went into opposition. In other words, I don't believe there's a Madison problem after all. Which is what Madison said late in his life. Uh, he said in response to uh, uh, the publication of Yeats's uh, 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 notes that, and, and criticism that he was being inconsistent, he says in, in 1831, there is only one James Madison, and I think he was right. How to explain the consistency, and that's what I want to do in this brief talk, is the consistency of Madison's thinking. First of all, I think we have to get back to the 18th century in order to understand exactly what Madison was trying to do in 1787. It may be that we scholars have been attributing far more far-sightedness, far more theoretical sophistication to Madison than he was in fact capable of. We want him to be one of the important political philosophers of the Western tradition. If the English have Hobbes and Locke, and the French of Montesquieu and, and Rousseau, then we Americans at least have Madison. Political scientists have been especially eager to treat Madison as America's foremost political philosopher and have compiled a small library of works analyzing his and, and Hamilton's contributions to the Federalist. According to many political theorists, to understand Madison is to understand American politics and often the dark side of American politics. So in Robert Dahl's formulation, Madison is the pluralist who unfortunately created our fragmented structure of government in order to protect minority rights at the expense of majority rule. Or according to Richard Matthews, 
Madison is a symbol of a cold-hearted American liberalism that promotes a selfish individualism that has no sense of benevolence and cares only for material wealth and property. Or, most recently, in Gary Rosen's hands, Madison is the innovative theorist of the social compact that is the foundation of natural rights in our limited constitutional government. Now, as these studies by political scientists and political theorists become more and more uh, refined and, and precious, they seem to drift farther and farther away from Madison's 18th century reality. Whatever his originality and creativity may be, we have to keep in mind that Madison was not speaking to us or to the ages. His world was not our world. Indeed, our world would have appalled him. Thus, in our efforts to relate his very time-bound thinking to our present predicaments, we run the risk of seriously distorting his world and what he was trying to do. Now, if we are to recover the, the historical Madison, I believe we have to soften, if not discard, the traditional idea that Madison was the father of the Constitution. He himself, of course, always said that it was the work of many heads and many hands, and with good reason, for the Constitution that emerged from the Philadelphia Convention was not at all what he wanted. When during the Convention, Madison lost the battle over proportional representation in both houses of the legislature with the so-called Connecticut Compromise, he was deeply depressed. He even caucused the next day with his fellow Virginian delegates over whether or not the whole Virginia delegation should withdraw from the convention. When he lost his congressional power to negative the state's laws, he was even more disheartened. He thought the Constitution was doomed to fail. Just before the convention adjourned, he told Jefferson that the new federal government would accomplish none of its goals. The Constitution, he said, will neither effectually answer its national object nor prevent the local mischiefs which everywhere excite disgusts against the state governments. Now think of it, that's an extraordinary statement, but it gives us, I think, some idea of how little the final Constitution resembled his original intentions, more or less, which were more or less embodied in the Virginia Plan. Now the Virginia Plan was, was certainly nationalistic and original, but it was a quirky, even visionary kind of originality that it expressed, one that proved unacceptable to most Federalists. The Virginia Plan grew out of Madison's view of what was wrong with America in the 1780s. For him, the weakness of the Confederation, which nearly everyone seemed to acknowledge by 1786-87, that, that weakness seemed secondary, in Madison's mind, to the vices within the several states. Not only did the self-interested behavior of the states weaken the Union, but more important, popular politics within the states threatened the revolutionary experiment in self-government. Ever since independence, said Madison, the states had passed a host of laws whose multiplicity, mutability, and injustice, uh, as he said, called into question the fundamental principle of republican government that the majority who rule in such governments are the safest guardians both of public good and private rights. By 1787, Madison was convinced that these problems within the states contributed more to the calling of the Philadelphia Convention than did the obvious weaknesses of the, of the Confederation Congress. It's this conviction that led Madison to the peculiarities of his Virginia plan, especially the power to veto state laws and, and the sweeping legislative authority that that he granted to the Congress. 
Now, of course, there were other Federalists who, who shared his disgust with what was happening in the, uh, in the states and agreed with his remedy of establishing an elevated national government. But many of them did not agree with the strange, judicial-like way he hoped to deal with the factional politics he found in the states. Madison had a very strange and unusual conception, I think, of American politics. In his analysis of the sources of interest and faction, in his most famous, uh, famous Federalist paper, number 10, he seems at first to be very much the cold-eyed realist. Interest group politics, he said, was an radical part of American social reality. People inevitably had interests, and because they wanted to protect those interests, they divided into political factions. The causes of faction, he, he wrote, were, were sown in the nature of man. It was naive to expect most people to put aside these interests for the sake of some nebulous public good. And it would be in denial of liberty to try to, uh, to eliminate these interests. He thus realized that the regulation of these private factional interests was becoming the principal task of modern legislation, which meant that the spirit of party and faction was in the future likely to be involved in the ordinary operations of government. Now at this point, um, even though many other Americans in 1787 were saying pretty much the same thing, although not as elegantly as, as, as Madison, we scholars have generally applauded Madison for his hard-headed realism, for his unsentimental willingness to question the utopianism of some of his fellow Republicans who had hoped in 1776 that the American people would have sufficient virtue to transcend their interests and act in a disinterested manner. Yet when we continue with his analysis in Federalist Number 10, we begin to realize that he's not quite as cold-eyed and practical as we had once thought. No government, he wrote, could be just if parties, that is, people with private interests to promote, became judges in their own causes. Indeed, interested majorities were no better in this respect than interested minorities. And I'm quoting here now from a large passage of, of Madison's uh, 10th Federalist. Uh, listen to the, the imagery here, judicial imagery. No man is allowed to be a judge in his own cause, because his interest would certainly bias his judgment and not improbably corrupt his integrity. With equal, nay, with greater reason, a body of men are unfit to be both judges and parties at the same time. Yet what are many of the most important acts of legislation but so many judicial determinations, not indeed concerning the rights of single persons, but concerning the rights of large bodies of citizens? And what are the different classes of legislators, but advocates and parties to the causes which they determine? Is a law proposed concerning private debts? Is a question to which the creditors are parties on the one side and debtors on the other? Justice ought to hold the balance between them. Yet the parties are and must be themselves the judges. And the most numerous party, or in other words, the most powerful faction, must be expected to prevail. Now since the popular colonial assemblies, like the High Court of Parliament, uh, itself had begun as courts, the General Court of Massachusetts, which is still named that, and much of their legislation had resembled adjudication, Madison's use of judicial imagery to describe the factional and interest group politics in the state legislatures may seem quite understandable. But thinking of government in judicial-like, uh, as, as a judicial-like uh, institution was not, I think, very practical and was not forward-looking at all. 
It pointed back toward the colonial word, uh, world, not towards our world. For all the brilliance of his diagnosis of, of interest-ridden popular politics in the States, his remedy of dealing with the, that politics was very eccentric and perhaps ultimately just as utopian, just as visionary as the views he was contesting. Madison's conception of the new national government was not modern at all. It was idealistic and pre-modern. Madison hoped that the new federal government might transcend parties and become a kind of super judge. It would become, as he put it, a disinterested and dispassionate umpire in disputes between different passions and interests in the various states. In fact, he said at one point, privately, to in a letter, he hoped that the new government might play the same super-political neutral role that the British king, ideally, had been supposed to play in the empire. Now, it's this kind of backward-looking, adjudicatory thinking that led Madison to concoct such an odd national government with its extraordinary power to veto all state laws. Such a negative in all cases whatsoever on the legislative acts of the states as heretofore exercised by the kingly prerogative, he told Washington a month before the meeting in Philadelphia, was absolutely necessary and the least positive encroachment on the state jurisdictions. As Jack, Jack Rakove has pointed out, this was a remarkably reactionary proposal. But not only was it reactionary, it was bizarre. It evoked not only the infamous phrases of the British Declaratory Act of 1766, but as well the royal veto that Jefferson had so bitterly denounced in the Declaration of Independence. Madison's curious commitment to this national congressional power to negative all state legislation was a measure, I think, of just how outlandish Madison's thinking actually was. Madison envisioned a very strange kind of national government, one that was principally designed to evade popular majority uh, politics in the states in order to protect individual liberties and minority rights. He certainly had little or no interest in creating a modern state with a powerful executive. In fact, he seems to have never much valued executive authority uh, in the states as a means of counteracting these legislative abuses that he, he witnessed in, in the 1780s. And his conception of the executive in the new national government remained hazy at best. As late as April 1787, he told Washington that he had scarcely ventured to form my own opinion, either of the manner in which the executive ought to be constituted or of the authorities with which it, with, with which it ought to be clothed. Through much of the convention, he assumed that the powers over appointment to offices and the conduct of foreign affairs would be assigned not to the president, but to the Senate. Only in mid-August, when Madison and other nationalists became alarmed by the states gaining uh, equal representation in the Senate with the Connecticut Compromise, were these powers taken away from the state, the now state-dominated Senates, and granted to the president. Madison in 1787 very much desired to transcend the states and build a national government with commercial regulatory power, but he had no intention of creating a modern, war-making nation-state with an energetic and powerful executive. Instead, he wanted a government uh, that would mainly act as a disinterested judge, a dispassionate umpire, adjudicating among the various interests in the society which is why he, unlike his friend uh, Jefferson, 
came late in his life to value the position of the Supreme Court in American politics. It was the only institution that came close to playing the role that in 1787 he had wanted the Federal Congress to play. Now, with his conception of the new national government as a neutral, disinterested umpire, Madison becomes something other than the practical pluralist that many scholars have believed him to be. He was not offering some early version of modern interest group politics. He was not a forerunner of 20th century political scientists like Arthur Bentley or David Truman. He did not envision public policy or the common good emerging naturally from the give and take of hosts of competing interests. Instead, he turns out to be a much more old-fashioned and classical thinker. He expected that the clashing interests and passions in the enlarged national republic would neutralize themselves in the society and allow liberally educated, rational men, men, he said, whose enlightened views and virtuous sentiments rendered them superior to local prejudices and to schemes of injustice, these enlightened men would decide questions of the public good in a disinterested and adjudicatory manner. Madison, in other words, was not at all as modern as we make him out to be. In his view, not everyone in government had to be a party to a cause. He believed that there were a few disinterested gentlemen in society, men like Jefferson and himself, and he hoped that his system would allow them, these few, to transcend the interest-mongering of the many and, and be able to act as neutral judges or, or referees in the new National Congress. As an auxiliary desideratum, desideratum he, he said, uh, Madison predicted that the elevated and expanded sphere of national politics would act as a kind of filter, refining the kind of men who would become these national umpires. In a larger arena of national politics with an expanded electorate and a smaller number of representatives, the people were more apt to ignore what he called the illiberal, narrow-minded men with factious tempers and local prejudices who had dominated the state legislatures in the 1780s, and instead would elect to the new federal government only those educated gentlemen, as he put it, with the most attractive merit and the most established characters. Graduates of Princeton and Harvard, that's what he had in mind. Madison's theory did not seem to have much practical effect, however, on the character of the new national government. In fact, by March 1789, Madison was already pessimistically predicting that the elevated Congress would behave pretty much as the vice-ridden state legislatures had behaved. In the Congress, we don't hear any more talk about his notions of the extended republic and the filtration of talent. These notions turned out to be as unrelated to reality as his ideas of the congressional power to veto all state laws had been. The truth is, Madison was never the hard-headed realist that we have often thought him to be. Despite the often questioning and probing quality of his mind, Madison was at heart a very idealistic, if not a utopian Republican, not all that different from his visionary friend and colleague, Jefferson. Madison began to reveal his peculiar conception of what the national government uh, ought to be when he gradually became aware in the early 1790s of the kind of government that Washington, Hamilton, and the other Federalists were creating. It was not a judicial-like umpire they were after, but a real modern European-type government with a bureaucracy, a standing army, and a powerful independent executive. Like Madison, other Federalists may have been concerned about too much majoritarian democracy in the states, but these Federalists had much grander ambitions for the United States 
than simply controlling popular politics in the states and protecting minority rights. Hamilton and his fellow Federalists wanted to emulate the state-building process that had been going on for generations in Europe and in Great Britain. If any of the founders was a modern man, it was not Madison, but Hamilton. It was Hamilton who sought to turn the United States into a powerful, modern, fiscal military state like those of Great Britain and France, the very sort of state that Madison abhorred, which is why Madison had no sense of inconsistency in turning against that war-making state that Hamilton was building in the 1790s. Now, the great development of the early modern period in, in the Western world was the emergence of modern states, modern nation-states, with powerful executives, states that were trying to harness the national feelings of their people and to create the fiscal and military capacity to wage war on unprecedented scales. Over the past several decades, scholars have accumulated a rich historical and, and sociological literature on state formation in early modern Europe. From the 16th century on, the European monarchies have been busy consolidating their power and marking out their authority within clearly designated boundaries, while at the same time protecting themselves from rival claimants to their power and territories. They erected ever larger bureaucracies and military forces in order to wage war, which is what they did through much of three centuries. This meant the building of ever more centralized governments and the creation of ever more elaborate means for extracting money and men from their subjects. These efforts in turn led to the growth of armies, the increase in public debts, the raising of taxes, and the strengthening of executive power. Now such monarchical state building, going over three centuries, was bound to promote opposition, especially among Englishmen, who had a long tradition of valuing their liberties and resisting crown power. The country Whig opposition ideology that arose in England in the late 17th and early 18th centuries was essentially proto-republican. It was resisting just these kinds of monarchical state-building efforts uh, that were taking place rather belatedly in, in England. When later 18th century British radicals like James Burr and Thomas Paine warned that the lamps of liberty were going out all over Europe and were being dimmed in Britain itself, it was these efforts at modern state formation that they were talking about. Madison, Jefferson, and many other Americans had fought the revolution to prevent the extension of these kinds of modern state-building efforts to America. They were not about to allow Hamilton and the Federalists to turn the United States into a modern fiscal military state burdened by debt and taxes and saddled with an expensive standing army. Such states smacked of monarchy and were designed for the waging of war. Of all the enemies to public liberty, wrote Madison in 1795, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other enemy. As the parent of armies, war, he said, not only promoted debts and taxes, but it also meant the discretionary power of the executive is extended. Its influence in dealing out offices, honors, and emoluments is multiplied and all the means of seducing the minds are added to those of subduing the force of the people. Now these sentiments, which Madison never tired of repeating, were the source of the Republicans' sometimes hysterical opposition to the Hamiltonian Federalist state-building schemes of the 1790s. Many American revolutionaries, including Jefferson and Madison, 
wanted to end this kind of modern state building and the kinds of international conflicts that this state building promoted. Just as enlightened Americans in 1776 sought a new kind of domestic politics that would end tyranny within nations, so too did they seek a new kind of international politics that would promote peace among nations and indeed that might even put an end to war itself. Throughout the 18th century, liberal intellectuals had dreamed of a new enlightened world in which corrupt monarchical diplomacy, secret alliances, dynastic rivalries, standing armies, and balances of power would disappear. Monarchy, unresponsive to the will of the people, was the problem. Its bloated bureaucracies, its standing armies, perpetual debts, and heavy taxes lay behind its need to wage war. Eliminate monarchy and all of its accoutrements and war itself could be eliminated. A world of Republican states would encourage a different kind of diplomacy, a peace-loving diplomacy, one based not on the brutal struggles for power, but on the natural concert of the commercial interests of the people of the various nations. If the people in all the nations were left alone to exchange goods freely among themselves, without the corrupting interference of selfish monarchical courts, irrational dynastic rivalries and the secret double-dealing diplomacy of the past, then it was hoped international politics would become republicanized, pacified, and ruled by commerce alone. Old-fashioned diplomats might not even be necessary in this new commercially linked world. Suddenly, in 1776, with the United States isolated and outside European, uh, the European mercantile empires, the Americans had both an opportunity and a need to put into practice these liberal ideas about international relations and the, and the free exchange of goods. Thus commercial interest and revolutionary idealism blended to form the basis for American thinking about foreign affairs that lasted well into the 20th century. And I think to some extent this blending is still present in our, in our thinking about the world. Our plan is commerce, Thomas Paine told Americans in 1776, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. There was no need for America to form any partial political connections with any part of Europe. Such traditional military alliances were the legacies of monarchical governments, and they only led to war. It is the true interest of America, said Paine, to steer clear of European contentions. Trade between peoples alone would be enough. Indeed, for Paine, Jefferson, Madison, and other idealistic liberals, peaceful trade among the people of the various nations became the counterpart to the, in the international sphere uh, to the sociability of people in the domestic sphere. Just as most enlightened thinkers foresaw a Republican society held together by, by uh, uh, the natural affection of people, so did they envision a world held together by the natural interests of nations in commerce. In both the national and international spheres, monarchy and its intrusive institutions and its monopolistic ways, those monopoly, uh, uh, monarchy was the, was the evil that was preventing a natural harmony of, of people's feelings and interests from, from being freely expressed. These enlightened assumptions, I think, are what lie behind the various measures of commercial coercion attempted by Madison, Jefferson, and other Republicans throughout the 1790s and the early decades of the 19th century. They knew only too well 
that if republics like the United States were to avoid the consolidating processes of the, of the swollen monarchical powers, heavy taxes, large permanent debts, and standing armies, they would have to develop peaceful alternatives to the waging of war. Madison, however, was not a completely naive utopian. He feared, as he wrote in 1792, that a universal and perpetual peace will never exist but in the imaginations of, visit, of visionary philosophers uh, or in the breasts of benevolent enthusiasts. Nevertheless, he goes on in this essay, uh, because of war was so foolish as well as wicked, he still hoped that the progress of reason might eventually end war. And if anything is to be hoped, he said, everything ought to be tried. The ideal, of course, was to have the world become republican. That is, composed of states whose governments were identical with the will of the people. Jefferson and Madison believed that, unlike monarchies whose wills were independent of the wills of their subjects, self-governing republics were likely to be peace-loving, a view, of course, that Hamilton had only contempt for. Madison did concede that even republics might occasionally have to go to war. But if wars were declared solely by the authority of the people, and more important, if the costs of these wars were borne directly and solely by the generation that declared them, then, wrote Madison, ample reward would accrue to the state. All wars of folly would be avoided, and only brief wars of necessity and defense would remain, and even these, he said, might disappear. If all nations were to follow this example, he said, the reward would be double to each, and the temple of Janus might be shut, never to be opened again. Well, since uh, they don't teach uh, much uh, Roman mythology anymore, you might not catch that image. Uh, when, when the Roman Empire was, uh, uh, was at, at peace, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the doors of the Temple of Janus were closed. When it was open, uh, Rome was at war. So, in other words, Madison is declaring in this little essay, believing that a republican world might, just might be able to close the door on war forever. In a world of monarchies, however, Madison concluded that the best hope for the United States was to avoid war, uh, for the United States to avoid war, was to, was to create some sort of peaceful republican alternative to it. This alternative was the use of commercial discrimination against foreign enemies, backed ultimately by the withholding of American commerce. These were, he said, the most likely means of obtaining our objects without war. In other words, Madison proposed the use of what we would today call economic sanctions, something that even now we desperately cling to as an alternative to the direct use of military force. Given the importance Republicans attached to commerce in tying nations together, it made sense to use commerce as a weapon in international politics. Now I suggest that it's this Republican idealism, this fear of the modern fiscal military state, and this desire to find peaceful alternatives to war, this, this is the best context for understanding the thinking of Madison and other Republicans. It helps to explain not only their attitude towards modern state power, but also their resort to trade discrimination against Great Britain in the early 1790s. Jay's treaty so outraged Madison and the other Republicans in 1795 precisely because it took this essential away, uh, weapon away from the United States. In the same way, this context, I think, helps to explain Jefferson and Madison's policies in the years following the lapses of Jay's treaty in 1806. 
the several non-importation and non-intercourse acts against the two European belligerents, Britain and, and France. These efforts came to a climax, as you know, with what Jefferson called his candid and liberal experiment in peaceful coercion. The Republicans' disastrous embargo of all American trade between 1807 and 1808. Surely the most extraordinary example in American history of ideological principles brought directly to bear on a matter of public policy. Actually, Madison believed in the coercive purposes of the embargo even more than did Jefferson. To the end of his life, Madison remained convinced that the embargo would have eventually worked if it had not been prematurely uh, repealed. But probably the most convincing evidence of the contrast between Madison's republican idealism and the state-building processes characteristic of the modern European monarchies was the way he and the other republicans prepared for and fought the War of 1812. Now, prepared for is highly the word to use. Uh, the Republicans in the Congress talked about war, but at the same time they proposed abolishing the army. They cut back the War Department and def defeated efforts to build up the Navy. They abolished the Bank of the United States on the eve of hostilities, and in March 1812 they very reluctantly agreed to raise taxes, which, however, were to go into effect only if war would actually break out. Now, historians... Uh, often cr harshly criticized Madison and, and the Republicans for the inept way they prepared for and conducted the war. But I think this criticism misses the point of what Madison and the Republicans were most frightened of. As Jefferson said in 1806, our Constitution is a peace establishment. It is not calculated for war. War, the Republicans realized, would lead to a Hamiltonian, monarchical-type government with increased taxes, an overblown bureaucracy, heavy debt, standing armies, and enhanced executive power. Since war was a threat to Republican principles, the Republican administration would have to wage the war that began in 1812 in a manner different from the way monarchies waged war. As Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin pointed out at the outset, the Republicans' dilemma was to wage a war without promoting the evils inseparable from it, debt, perpetual taxation, military establishments, and other corrupting or anti-Republican habits or institutions. Madison remained remarkably sanguine during the disastrous events of the war. Better to allow the country to be invaded and the capital burned than to build up state power in a European monarchical manner. He knew that a, republic, a Republican leader could never become a Napoleon or, or even a Hamilton. He knowingly accepted the administrative confusion and inefficiencies and the military failures, calm in the conviction that in a republic, strong executive leadership could only endanger the principles for which the war was fought. So even though the war settled nothing, it actually settled everything. It vindicated the grand revolutionary experiment in limited republican government. As the city of Washington, uh, D.C. declared in 1817 in a formal tribute to the retiring president, the sword of war uh, had, had usually been wielded at the expense of civil or political liberty, but this was not the case with Madison in the war against Britain. Not only had the president kept the sword within its proper limits, but he also had directed an armed force of 50,000 men, aided by an annual disbursement of many millions of dollars, without infringing a single political, civil, or religious right. As one admirer noted, Patterson, uh, Madison had withstood both a powerful foreign enemy and, a, and widespread domestic opposition without one trial for treason or even one prosecution for libel.
Now, historians like us living in a world dominated by a vast federal bureaucracy, a sprawling Pentagon, an enormous CIA, huge public debts, taxes beyond any the founders could have imagined, and well over a million men and women under arms may not appreciate Madison's achievement, but contemporaries did. Notwithstanding a thousand faults and blunders, John Adams told Jefferson in 1817, Madison's administration had acquired more glory and established more union than all his three predecessors, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, put together. We, have, we historians, I think, have, have gotten uh, so used to praising Madison, the author of the Tenth Federalist, and denigrating Madison, the president, that we assume that there must be two different Madisons. But there is no Madison problem except the one that we have concocted. Maybe we ought to spend less time investigating Madison, the father of the Constitution, and more time investigating Madison, the president. As we today anxiously search for ways to wage war without warriors and without bloodshed, at least our own, maybe Madison, the president, can give us some perspective on what we're trying to do. Yeah, I'll be happy to take questions, and then I'll just re try to repeat the questions if, if you have any. Yes? What was Madison's response to the French Revolution in regards to this principle of the tyranny of the majority? He, the, did you all hear the question, what was Madison's response to the response to the French Revolution in regards to his fear of the tyranny of the majority. Uh, I don't, he was a, a firm supporter of the, uh, of the French Revolution, as were the Republicans in general. They thought that the French Revolution was an extension of their revolution, and, and given their notion of, of what, uh, the kind of Republican world they wanted, it was their wildest dream being fulfilled. So you can fully understand that. Uh, he never as far as I know, it never makes the outlandish kinds of statements that Jefferson had made um, that, uh, you know, better, uh, better uh, if even if uh, an Adam and Eve were, were all that were left after all the killing, better that and liberty be, uh, be secured, then, that, then it would be worth it. Those kinds of statements, that these outlandish, uh, exaggerated statements that, that uh, uh, Jefferson made. But I, I don't know of any comment against the revolution. Obviously there were real problems with, 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 the, with the directory and when the crisis came in, in 1798, although they had a very hard time uh, accepting the fact that the French government, which uh, had taken over and, and would soon be usurped by, by Napoleon, was, um, was not favoring the United States. They just couldn't believe that. Uh, their, their sympathies were so strong that I think the uh, Republicans simply blinded themselves to the reality of, of what the French were doing. They were very, very reluctant. Uh, only with Napoleon's takeover do you find a, a backing away from, uh, from the earlier enthusiasm. Uh, but I don't know of any particular uh, statement where Madison shows much doubt about the goodness of the French Revolution. It was just their, 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 their dreams coming true. Uh, if you can see from what I've tried to describe, uh, this was going to create the kind of international world that they, they were hoping for.
Yes. That's the question is, um, in addition to his opposition to Hamilton's program, to what extent did the slavery issue affect his uh, attitude towards states' rights? Um, that's a very, very difficult question. Uh, jo jo Joseph Ellis has just written a book, as some of you may know, called The Revolutionary uh, Founding Brothers. And he has a very intriguing chapter on the, called The Silence which he argues that um, the founders simply took this issue, including Madison, off the agenda because it was going to endanger the Union. Uh, it was, they all knew it was a, a hot-button issue that, that simply couldn't be tackled. Um, but Madison was, like uh, Jefferson and the others, a hopeful dreamer. I do believe that all of the leading Southern... Um, revolutionaries thought that slavery somehow was going to come to an end. Now they weren't quite, quite sure how, but they just hoped against hope that it would end. And they all spoke out against it. Um, so I, I think they just wanted to wait a while, hoped, I think, that the, um, uh, that the, um, the ending of the slave trade, in 1808, which they expected would happen in 1808, would doom the institution. Now, they couldn't have been more wrong. They just misjudged the future. They misjudged the future in a whole host of ways, of course. Uh, and in that, that issue, they misjudged it completely. There were more slaves uh, alive uh, after the revolution, even though the North abolished, it put slavery on the, to, to an end in all the northern states by 1804. Uh, nonetheless, there were more slaves uh, present in, in the United States at the end of the revolutionary era than at the beginning. And, and, and Virginia was producing them by, by, by great numbers and, and was able to supply the internal slave trade. Madison, I don't think, um, ever wanted the institution to be perpetuated. He did want the Union to remain, and so I think he... Um, I, I don't think that was the, the, the crucial issue in his state's rights. Um, it, it probably was by the 18... By 1820 for Jefferson, but I, I don't have, a, I don't feel that that was true of of, uh, of, um, of Madison. Madison never becomes quite as fanatical a states' rightist as Jefferson. Jefferson really is a, a kind of fire-eating states' rightist by the end of his life, uh, indistinguishable in his writings from uh, from some of the uh, fire-eating um, uh, um, uh, antebellum uh, Southerners on, on the eve of the Civil War. Uh, but Madison never reaches that point. He always remains a unionist, and, and he's embarrassed by slavery, but he has no solution. Yes? Gee, I'm not sure I have the answer to that. His re uh, I mean... Burr was so much condemned by both sides um, of, of both Federalists. You know, Hamilton turned against uh, uh, Burr. He had a he, he could have he could have supported Burr uh, as against Jefferson, whom he hated. 
And he says that. He hates Jefferson more than he hates Burr. He says, Burr's my friend, but he's unscrupulous. Madison um, and Jefferson felt the same, and they, they never trusted Burr. Uh, and I'm sure Madison's views on Burr were, were similar to, to Jefferson's. They simply did not trust him. He was too conniving, too, too unscrupulous, willing to look out for Aaron Burr first. Um, after that, Burr is really isolated. He's unable to establish himself uh, anywhere, as you perhaps know. Uh, but I don't know of any particular quotation there. Ralph Ketchum is here, and, and, and John Stagg, who are, who's editor of the Madison Papers, could probably answer that question better than I. I don't know of any particular comment that Madison made about, uh, about Burr. Yes, way up there. Right. Uh, the question is, what were the particular problems in the 1780s that Madison was so concerned about? And these were summarized in a, a brilliant essay, which he's never published, a working paper called Vices of the System of the United States, uh, which I, I quoted a couple of uh, sentences from. Uh, the, the, the multiplicity, the mutability, and the injustice of the state laws. What was surprising to him was the way, was the way in which the state legislatures, which were popularly elected, were uh, abusing minority rights. And he meant particularly rights of property, of wealthy people were having their property taken away, largely by inflation, by paper money, and various other um, debt-protective uh, uh, protective schemes. And he just thought this was, um, was unjust. And he felt it was frightening because how in a republic which relies on majority rule can you stop this? Uh, now, this has been a major, the reason Madison has been so meaningful to us is this is a major problem for, for Americans because we are a very democratic society and, and most of our efforts, I think over the last 200 years plus, have been spent trying to temper and control our democratic processes. Um, I mean, I would give you just exhibit one would be the Federal Reserve System, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, which Greenspan has enormous power, but nobody in his right mind wants him elected, wants an elected official. We have all, and the, the courts, of course, are the ultimate institution, especially the federal courts, which are appointed for life, uh, and they decide important things like elections. Uh, <laughs> this is an extraordinary power that we give to institutions that have no democratic base, and the reason we do that is because we are such a democratic people. We are so democratic uh, that we need these kinds of tempering institutions. And I think Madison, that's where his insight is, is truly crucial. He saw that problem, and that's what he focuses on. Now, I would, and I think that's brilliant. I think his solution is bizarre, that's all. This notion that you have this Congress, he doesn't even think about the the president. He isn't even thinking about a modern state. You have an idea he has a Congress which is going to veto, have the power to veto all state laws. Imagine if that were true. I mean, the 50 states, the Congress would be looking through every state law, trying to decide, should we okay this one or not okay? I mean, the whole thing was, was, was eccentric. Uh, but it, so his remedy, I think, is wrong-headed, but his diagnosis of the problem is brilliant and is the problem of American democracy. I think that really is our problem. How do we maintain majority rule? And you're going to hear Scalia tomorrow night. He's a, he's a real Jeffersonian Democrat. 
He believes in majority rule. He doesn't think court should have this kind of power. And that's, uh, it's a real problem because presumably we're all Democrats and yet we put an awful lot of reliance on courts which are unelected to decide important things for us, run prisons, run schools, and decide elections. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think so. I don't think he foresaw. He thought the great extent of the country would break things up and people would not be able to cohere. I mean, he didn't foresee the internet. He did see what newspapers could have a. See, he was more worried about the people flying apart. Certainly by the 90s, that's his concern. And so he wants to bring them together. Uh, and so he thought newspapers would act as a kind of adhesive. I, I should have rep repeated that question. Did, he, did, did Madison have any way of. of uh, uh, of, of, uh, did he ever think uh, or imagine a national faction that would cover the whole nation, uh, a majority of the nation being oppressive? I don't think he could foresee that, even in his own day where you had a much smaller country. I think he thought that expanding the uh, arena would, would break up these factions and make them, uh, uh, they would neutralize themselves in the society. Uh, and, and I think his greater concern in the 90s is, is with keeping this, the country together. Uh, and, and that was a real Republican concern. And, and they, they worried about this. And they were willing to back amendments that would allow for canals and road building by the national government. Um, and newspapers were going to play a very important role. So I, think, I don't think he could have imagined a national faction. In fact, I find it hard to imagine one myself in a nation as diverse and as ours. We have parties, but the parties are, uh, are incredibly weak and becoming weaker every, uh, every moment. Yes? Well, I don't know. The question is, other than the way he handled the War of 1812, what other aspects of his presidency were commendable? Um, most of it was, of course, taken up, preparing for that war and, um, and dealing with, with the, the foreign powers. Um, I can't think of anything else that he did except to keep, um, to keep the United States true, as he saw it, to its Republican principles uh, without creating this modern state. That's really what the Republicans were about. I, I believe that strongly, and, and they felt so deeply about that. Uh, that, that to go down that road, that European road, would be a disaster. Now, that's the road we've gone down. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, this is the issue that we want, and yet we're not quite happy with it. Uh, and certainly in war making, I think, is a, is a real uh, problem. I think that, um, uh, I, I think the resort to sanction, economic sanctions, our hesitancy in using um, our military forces, um, is part of that. I mean, you can go back and look at the roots of that in, in, in Jefferson and Madison's administrations. I don't know of anything off the top of my head, but as I say, there are other experts here who could probably answer that for you. One more question? Yeah. Yes. Uh, put aside the controversy over how the states and the federal government ought to provide power. Was any analogous controversy over which areas neither government 
Oh, Madison was keen on, on religion, as you know, as, as a, uh, an area that, that was, should be immune to, 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 to state power. He actually wanted, if I remember correctly, the Bill of Rights to, to extend to the states on that issue, on a couple of issues of that sort, but particularly on religion. And uh, now that didn't happen, as you know, uh, it, uh, the, the, the First Amendment applies, applied only to the federal government until uh, the incorporation process of the, of the 20th century, which incorporated some of the amendments into the, uh, to apply to the states. Uh, Madison actually would have liked that area to be immune to all state power, and I think that was of, of all the issues that he was, of all the liberal issues, if you will, enlightened issues, that was the one he felt most deeply about. And so there were areas that no government should intervene in, and, and I, I think that's religion. And that's quite extraordinary. Uh, when you think about it, uh, religion has always been, had always been considered so important that no state would ever stay away from it. I think this is still a problem that we Americans have dealing with, with the rest of the world. Religion, if it's important, Government has to deal with it, should be dealing with it, and, and we've, we're trying to, to, and we're having our own problems because we, we try to make it private. But it's not really private. It's too important to be just private. It has public uh, roles to play, and yet we're not able to handle that problem. We've created a, a kind of a problem for ourselves. Uh, Madison never had to wrestle with it the way we are because um, there was a, a general acceptance uh, of, uh, you might say, a kind of Protestant civic religion by the early 19th century to an extent that we would find in our secular world impossible to tolerate. Okay. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Before I ask you to join me in thanking Gordon once again for this very searching and stimulating lecture to begin our conference, let me make uh, several very simple announcements. For those who have registered as conferees or as auditors, there are uh, down at the foot of these stairs, uh, these uh, conference materials, uh, including name tags, and they'll be important tomorrow. Uh, in getting into this room, Makosh 50. And I understand that's to be the primary means uh, of entrance to the room. Uh, the session will begin again, the sessions will begin again tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Registration uh, will be available from 8 o'clock on. Um, one final comment for those who are driving and need parking. There is a new university parking garage reached from Faculty Road and you may park on the fifth level, I believe, the top level of that facility, uh, and a jitney runs up on a regular schedule. Thank you once again, Gordon, for starting this conference off with a wonderful lecture. We're deeply in your debt. And thank you all for coming out on such a snowy evening.